Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing. Before the appointed time, wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive the praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of the way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come to you in love and with a gentle spirit? Hi. One of the great things about uh, prison ministry is it gives me lots of uh, illustrations for sermons, and uh, I'm going to start with one here, which I think illustrates the problem in the Corinthian church. I was a few weeks ago, I visited Park Lee Correctional Centre in Sydney. Um, I was invited by the chaplain. I went along to do a service in the afternoon and speak, and, uh, but I got there early. He asked me to get there early, and when I got there, he said, let's go for a walk down to SEG, segregation, 
and just talk to some guys that are locked up. Um, Segregation is just guys that have got into trouble in the in the cell block for whatever reason or in protection. It's, it's actually solitary confinement, but they don't call it that anymore. So we walk down to SEG and you can talk to guys through the bars. They can't see each other, but you can go along the, the, the front and talk to them. And we came to this young guy uh, whose name was Guy. He was 19 and the chaplain introduced himself and, and, and I. And uh, this guy said, oh, I'm so pleased you've come. I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus. Um, but he said, I've got into trouble. I'm in jail. And now I've got into trouble in jail. Told us a bit of his story. And when he finished, uh, the chaplain said to him, now, Guy, I want to tell you a story, and this is your story. Imagine your life is a car and you're in the driver's seat. You decide where to go. You decide what to do. Now, Jesus is in the car, but he's in the back seat. You know he's there. You look at him every now and then, but you're the one calling the shots. He said, Guy, you've crashed the car. You've done a bit of damage to yourself, to relationships. Would you agree with that guy? And Guy said, yeah, yeah, 100%. Then the cha chaplain said, Guy, you need to get Jesus into the driver's seat. You can't have Jesus just as saviour and not as Lord. You need to enthrone him as Lord of your life. Are you ready to do that? And Guy said, yeah, I've got to. And then we went through uh, some passages of scripture, prayed together. I signed him up for Crossroads, of course, and... Uh, yeah, gave him a Bible and showed him a few, uh, gave him a Bible reading program. But that's the problem. Actually, Ellis nailed it in the prayer. That's the problem in the Corinthian church. They don't have Jesus in the driver's seat. They're in the driver's seat. And they see life as Jesus serving them, not the other way around. So for the for Corinthian church, it's all about me, 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 not Jesus. Um, and I wonder... If you and I were as honest as Guy, what areas of our lives do we not have Jesus in the driver's seat? Um, so chapter four, we're, we're going to look at two areas uh, facing the, Christ uh, the Corinthians. Uh, the first part, one to seven, uh, looks at the concluding lessons on this problem they have where they're choosing different teachers. Some are saying, I worship, I, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. Um, they've got this personality cult problem there. Um, and the second, the rest of the chapter, we'll look at the vast differences uh, Paul points out between the Christian way of life, the apostles are living, and the Corinthian way of life. Um, so, uh, and Paul closes the chapter just telling them to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So we're going to break the passage up into three sections. The first part, the final words about the divisions and quarrelling over teachers. Secondly, the comparison between the two lifestyles. And thirdly, what it looks like to imitate Christ, really. And uh, we're just going to have a quick look then at what it means, how that applies to our lives today. And I can't cover everything, but uh, we're going to cover, um, we'll have a look at money, uh, sex and ego. So as we look into it, let's, let's start with prayer. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you for your word. Thank you for the thank you for what these instructions you've given us. Help us to really understand them. Help me to be faithful to your word. Pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of areas in our lives where we we are in the driver's seat calling the shots and we need to get Jesus there. Yeah, convict us, Lord, to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, so we start at verse one about the uh, the final teachings about these uh, these divisions on teachers, and Paul says straight up. So then, and this is a pretty pretty blunt truth for the Corinthians, you ought, you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Notice, not servants of the Corinthians. It's a bit of a slapdown for the Corinthians. The way they are carrying on saying, my teacher is better than your teacher, reflects the arrogance of their attitude, uh, this all about them thing. Paul goes on to tell them why it is Jesus they serve and not them. Uh, because they're entrusted by Jesus with secret things of God. Now, there's several places in the Bible that tells us what the mystery of the cross is, the secret things. Colossians 1.26 said, this mystery now revealed is the gospel of Jesus. Repentance and faith leading to salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. And Paul says it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. So it's to God that the teachers are held responsible. And I just want you to think about the enormity of that statement, especially in light of our main teachers, Rob and Liam. James 3 verse 1 says, those who teached will be judged more strictly. These men are going to be called to a higher standard. They're going to have to account to the living God for that one day. So we should be praying for our leaders and teachers, pray for their ministries, their families and their lives. Satan is going to destroy their ministries. So pray for their protection, pray for support for them. Paul then says his conscience is clear, but it doesn't make him innocent. Um, on that day, God will expose the motives of men's hearts and no one's perfectly innocent. All of us struggle with motives. Now, for those who teach, there is a constant battle between giving glory to God and claiming glory for yourself. Um, and we only do it by the grace of God given us in Christ. Again, in verse 5, Paul says, judge nothing before the appointed time. What does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is judge nothing. It can't mean that because in chapter 5, Paul tells the Corinthians there to judge the immoral brother. In chapter 6, he tells them there to appoint judges uh, to settle disputes in the church. In chapter 7, he tells them to judge who they are to marry. So what, what is Paul saying? He's talking about judgments that are God's alone, and he will make them at the appointed time. That's when, when uh, Jesus returns and there's a day of judgment. He will see into the hearts of men. So it, it seems what's happening in Corinth, some of the divisions are because they're claiming your teacher has false motives. He's doing it for his own glory. My, my teacher, is, uh, he's got a pure heart. And Paul is saying, leave those judgments in the hands of God. He will reward or not, as he perfectly sees the motives of men's hearts. So, so what, do we, what do we get from these teachings? Uh, they should drive us to follow the biblical imperative from 1 Timothy 5. Pray for your leaders and give them double honour. Paul then says there is a place we should make wise judgments. In verse 6, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. What Paul's saying in his uh, cryptic sort of way is, having told you what you cannot judge us by, here is what you can judge us by. Faithfulness to the word of God, to what is written. 
We should, we should hold our teachers accountable uh, to what they teach. If you hear someone up the front here teach something that's not biblical, you should go to them and, with it and discuss it with them, but you need to go with your Bible in your hand. One of the wonderful things I think we do here at Lake Mac is we have a question time after the sermon. That puts a lot of pressure on, on teachers, um, but it's an opportunity for the whole church to, be, uh, to get clarification or for, or for teachers to be corrected. I know I've been corrected by a question here. And not many churches do this. It's incredibly gracious of our leaders to submit themselves to that. And just like praying for leaders is a responsibility on all of us, so, uh, so also we should take seriously holding them faithful to the word of God, to scripture. Uh, and Paul closes uh, this section of teaching in verse 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you do not? Everyone's got varying gifts, but don't give glory to the receiver of gifts. Give the glory to the giver and where it truly belongs to God. Uh, it is life and doctrine we are to judge by. Godly men handling the word of truth faithfully. So what's it, all that last teaching mean for us here at Lake Matt? Well, we're not to judge our teachers by their differing gifts, gifts but rejoice in the diversity that God has blessed them and us with. Let's not judge by their eloquence or the amount of time it takes them to explain one thing or another over another. Let's support them in prayer, give them double honour and hold them to faithfulness to the Bible. And, uh, and let's pray and support them as they lead us to follow, not them, but Jesus. Now that ends Paul's instructions on that. He's now going to go into verses 8 to 11, and this really goes to the heart of the problem in Corinth. Um, this comparison between the uh, attitude of the lives of the Corinthians and the apostles. And he starts the passage off with cutting sarcasm. I read a few commentaries on this, and there's quite a few commentators say, this verges on sarcasm. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It is sarcasm. Listen to it. Paul writes, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. You can almost picture the Corinthians. This letter would have been read out to the Corinthian church, so you can almost picture them as this is read out, breaking into smug smiles as uh, they read, oh, we have it all, you are rich, you are kings, and then Paul hits them with, yeah, not. And uh, why does Paul do this? He wants to grab their attention. This is a flashing neon light saying, you know, wake up, you people, listen to this, You're, you've got a big problem. And he immediately contrasts that view of themselves as rulers and having it all and being kings. He contrasts that with the apostles' view of themselves. And it's a startling contrast in verse 9. He says, It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us today, but it meant a lot back then in the Roman Empire. When the Romans won a great victory, uh, a conquest, they would come back to Rome and they'd march into Rome in a big procession and the generals would be up the front on their charges and then chariots and then all the, uh, the soldiers, the victorious soldiers. But at the end of the procession, they'd have the captives from the war and they'd be subject to ridicule as they walked through and people would throw things at them. Um, 
and they were going to the arena, they would become, be slaughtered by lions or uh, gladiators. What a, what a contrast to the Corinthians think, thinking of their selves. Paul doesn't give up on the sarcasm. He goes on, he lays it on pretty thick. From verse 10, he says, We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. And, and then he changes tack in verses 11 to 13, and he tells the Corinthians what the actual life is like for the apostles. He says, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless, and we even work hard with our own hands. He then tells the Corinthians about the, apostle, the way the apostles react to trials. And when you consider all the fights and divisions in the Corinthian church, this is a radically different way of living and behaving in your life. He says, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse, the garbage of the world. Um, see, apostles give up their rights. In verse 14, he writes, he says, I'm writing this as a warning to you people. And then he goes on to tell them he's got some credentials. Um, he says, look, I'm your father in the faith. He's the one that gave them the gospel, brought about their salvation. And he wants you, I want you to listen to me. I've got some authority here. And that brings us to our third point. He's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You'll see there, Jesus and that's, that's who they, we ultimately imitate is Jesus. Jesus could have been born in a palace, but he chose a stable. He could have been born into a royal family, the son of a queen, but he chose a young peasant girl. And she's from Galilee. That's Hicksville. It's Dubbo. No, hold on. There's no one from Dubbo here, is there? <laughs> he could have been an emperor, a general, but he chose to be an itinerant preacher. And he could have had a state funeral but he chose the humiliation of a cross. Yet he is the most influential person that has ever lived. How does that work? Because the gospel turns everything upside down. In the church, it's not the way of the world that has power. The last shall be first. Humility, humility and sacrifice become the path to glory. There's a great line in a book, I, I don't know if many of you here have read Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. I'm sure some have. It's a book by, yep, some, a book by Nabil Qureshi. I hope I got that right. He won't mind. He's no longer alive if I got it wrong, but anyway. Um, and there's a whole book about his struggle uh, from Islam and, and to Christianity. And at the end of the book, though, he becomes a Christian, and it has shocking consequences in his, for his family. He says... When he tells his family it's the first time he ever saw his father cry, his mother feels betrayed, and it causes huge problems. And at, a lowest, at his lowest point, he's crying out to God, why is this happening to me? And he says he, it's almost like he heard God speak to him and say to him, it's not about you. And he, that was a transformational moment in the life of Nabil Kashiri. Every Christian has to have that transformation where life becomes about Jesus. That's what the Corinthian church need to have. And that's what they haven't understood. It's now all of, for Christians, it's now all about living for his glory, not our own. And that changes everything, all our priorities, all your values, all your rights. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, 
This is written 2,000 years ago to the Corinthian church. It doesn't really apply to me today. Well, Paul destroys that thinking in verse 17. He says, this is what I teach in every church, everywhere. So what does this mean for us? Uh, it's not time to address every part of our lives, so we'll just look at three of the big ones in our culture, money, sex and, and ego, um, and see how Jesus should change our worldly perspective to a Christ-centred perspective, with him in the driver's seat, if you like. Money, we live in the wealthiest society that has ever existed. So being wealthy is obviously going to have temptations. 1 Timothy 6.18 says, I want you to give instructions to those in the church who are rich uh, to be generous with their wealth. You notice it doesn't say they must get rid of their wealth. So how do we balance that? How do we get a godly perspective on our wealth? The first thing to say is hold it loosely. It's transient. It can be lost in a moment. Your greatest treasure is not your wealth. You're now your greatest treasure that cannot spoil or fade is Jesus. That's the perspective we should have on wealth and we should use it for the good of the kingdom and we should be generous with it. Uh, we talked earlier about my work with Crossroads. I am stunned at the generosity of Christians. Who I often have people who are non-Christians say, how do you fund all this ministry? People just give us money. Um, it's, uh, it's an amazing, the generosity of a lot of Christians. Um, and when I retired here to the coast in 2019 and joined Lake Mac Church and got to know people here like me who were retired, I was amazed at how many of them uh, were involved in Christian ministries and what they contributed. Um, there are, I'm told, I've got a mate works, uh, again, a retired guy who works as a volunteer for uh, the Bible League. And he told me recently, he said, you know, there's 50,000 non-for-profit charitable organisations in Australia and 30,000 of them are Christian, funded by Christians just giving them money. Um, on, a, on, a, on a closer to home level at Lake Mac Church, we do not pay our own way here. We don't have a budget that pays for, the, for all our ministry. And while there may be many here who give generously, perhaps there are some of us who could... Uh, find giving a better a way of expressing our Christian faith and uh, practice that a bit better. Maybe start giving. Maybe praying about what it is to give generously. If you're upset at me saying that, good. Maybe the Holy Spirit is challenging you and your attitude to money. Next sex, not something I think I'm an expert on, but I'll have a go. <laughs> I don't have a lot to say. I just want to point out some biblical instructions in God's good creation in Genesis 2, sex is between one man and one woman for life. Now, there are provisions in the New Testament in very specific circumstances where divorce is allowable, but for Christians, the big rule is one per man, one woman for life. We live in an age where pornography is available in graphic detail, not just on your devices, but on TV, I've got a friend who calls SBS Sex Before Seven. Pornography is a huge problem for people. Married or not, it damages you. Jesus says if you look at a person lustfully, you are guilty of adultery in your heart. And you're also supporting an industry that dehumanises and degrades. Now, I have a couple of close Christian friends and we've set up some software that allows us to hold each other accountable for what we look at. On our, on our gear, and I, 
I know other men here have done the same or other people here have done the same. I'd strongly advise you to do the same. Talk, talk to one of our leaders if you'd like help to do that. But don't let Satan have a foothold. Get Jesus in the driver's seat. And the last one I want to talk about is ego, status, self-glorification. And this is a really hard one, I found, because um, we're just conditioned all the time. The world around us is constantly bombarding us about why everything's about you. Um, it's uh, TV, sport, advertising, movies. The whole culture is focused in that direction. One of the most popular sayings you'll hear in society is, be true to yourself. No, for Christians, it's be true to Jesus. We can seek to glorify ourselves in so many ways, in sinful ways. Uh, slander is a great temptation, and it's so damaging. It's a really effective way to create divisions and jealousies in the church. And slander feeds our sinful desire to fee feel better about ourselves. That can't be the case anymore for those in Jesus. It's the big message Nabil Qureshi had to learn. It's not about you anymore. It's about Jesus. The Bible says, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought in Romans 12. Philippians 2.3 says, humble, be humble. Think of others as better than yourself. How do I do that? How do I create that in my heart? Well, the biggest step, the first step, is when you submit your whole life and eternity to Jesus. Recognise you are completely lost and dead in your sin with no capacity to even seek Jesus, according to Romans 3.11. So all the credit and glory goes to him. Uh, 1 Peter 5 says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Uh, what, what did we read earlier in, in uh, verse 7? What do you have that you were not giving him? Nothing. It's all a gift from God. Um, so we've got nothing to boast in. But our sinful nature fights against humility. So we need to be praying for grace. Pray for God to give you a humble and contrite heart. There's some great examples in this passage. When we curse, we bless. When we're persecuted, we don't retaliate. We endure. Uh, when we're slandered, we answer kindly. Give up those rights. Jesus says in Luke 9.23, Deny yourself daily, take up your cross and follow me. The apostles are prepared to be the scum of the world. Why? For the sake of the gospel. It's that important. It's a completely different pathway to that of the world. It's a path of humiliation and sacrifice and rejection that has the power from God for the gospel. Jesus went to a criminal's death and that sacrifice has transformed people for 2,000 years. That's the battle plan. This is the upside-down Christian life. I'm not, I'm not saying we are saved by living good, sacrifice, sacrificial lives serving others. We're saved by Jesus, his death in our place for our sin, now risen, our living saviour. But our response to that salvation, to that gift of forgiveness, is to live for him. Now, before I finish, I just want to address what might be the elephant in the room. Uh, this message of a humble, sacrificial life serving others can sound pretty unappealing and joyless, and I, I really think especially for our young people. Um, that is not what the Bible says. There is so much about joy and blessing for those who trust in Jesus. 
The lie of the world is that living for the pleasures of this world and for self-gratification will lead to a happy, fulfilled, fulfilled life. The Corinthian church has fallen for that lie, and it's a disaster. There are divisions within the church. They're taking each other to court. Um, there's broken families. There are broken marriages. There is power struggles. There is jealousy and strife. Don't fall for that lie. The other lie is that a life of worshipping Jesus and serving others is a miserable life. No, it's a life blessed with joy, contentment, hope, peace, love and forgiveness and grace in Christ. And yes, with, some re with rejection and ridicule from the world, but we have a higher vision. This world is not our home. We have an eternity to come when our Saviour returns. Okay, so I started the message telling you about this uh, young fellow Guy in Park Lee Prison. I want to close by telling you about another prisoner, Bob. Um, and this guy, Bob, has Jesus firmly in the driver's seat. What's challenging about Bob's story here is that following Jesus is clearly going to have some huge consequences for him, tough consequences. Sometimes obeying Jesus is pretty hard in harder than following the way of the world. And in those choices, we need to trust Jesus with the consequences. Now, you'll see that in the story. Don't worry, you'll pick it up when I get to it. So a while ago, I went to a prison in Western Sydney. I caught the train down and then I got a bus out to the prison and I, I attended chapel, I spoke at chapel, signed up a few students. But after the service, the chaplain, Wally, great big fella, um, chaplain Wally, he puts on a cuppa. Every prison's different, they do things different, but Wally puts on a cuppa and a biscuit for the guys that come to chapel. You've never seen anyone put so much coffee and sugar into a little cup as prisoners do. I've no idea why, but the spoon stands up. I mean, like, they'll put tablespoons in. Unbelievable. But anyway, we're having a cuppa, and I sat down next to this old guy, Bob, older guy. People in prison often look a lot older than they are, I might add. They've often had hard lives. But anyway, we sat down and chatted about the message. He had a great knowledge of scripture. And after it was over, Chaplain Wally said to me, listen, Alan, I'll drive you back to the station, save you waiting for a bus. And on the way back to the station, he said to me, I noticed you talking to Bob. Did he tell you his story? And uh, I said, oh, no, he didn't tell me much about himself. We just chatted. He's, he was a, had a crossroads student that had done quite a bit of crossroads. Anyway, Wally said, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you his story. About, I'll tell you about him. He said, Bob was a specialist armed hold-up man. And Bob's done a fair bit of time in prison. But here a few years ago, Bob started coming to chapel. And it wasn't what he expected. He said, Bob had this idea of this big angry God in the sky who hated him and wanted to punish him. And he heard about a loving saviour who had died for him and wanted to love him and forgive him. And Bob accepted Jesus as his Lord and Saviour. So sometime later, Bob became convicted to call his solicitor. And he said to his solicitor, look, there's another eight armed hold-ups I have done that are unsolved crimes. And he said to his solicitor, I want you to contact the relevant, relevant authorities, whether it be the Crown solicitor, I don't know, and inform them. And his solicitor said, look, Bob, it's not like on TV. It's, there's no new tricks or cold cases. There's no crime units out there looking into historic crimes. They're never coming for you. Um, they're historic crimes. They're too busy for that. Just forget about it. And Bob said, I don't care about that. I want to confess. And his solicitor said, well, I'm not doing it, and hung up on him. 
So Bob uh, called the local police and he uh, told them about the crimes and uh, they came out to the jail and they charged him. And eventually he had his day in court and they took him away to court. When he came back to the prison from court, Wally met him at the, they got him out of the, the van and took the cuffs off and Wally walked with him back to his cell. And Wally said to him, how'd it, how'd it go, Bob? And Bob said, they've added another 11 years onto my sentence. And Wally said, how do you feel, Bob? And Bob said, mate, I feel like a huge weight's been lifted off me. Wally said to me, you know, by every worldly metric, Bob should be devastated and he's walking on air because he served his saviour faithfully. Another 11 years and he's able to trust Jesus with that. That's what trusting Jesus looks like. Bob has Jesus firmly in the driver's seat. Do you? Let's, uh, let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this message. Thank you for the big lesson here that we need to get Jesus in the driver's seat. We've all got areas of our lives where we're struggling to do that. And we all look at the consequences and think, oh, if I do that, it's going to be a tough road. And we need to learn to put Jesus, to trust him with it, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so, Lord, yeah, convict us through your Holy Spirit. Help us to live lives that are powerful and effective, upside-down lives that, that, bring, that have the power of the gospel affecting our lives to the world around us. And for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So pop up your hand if you have a question. And uh, I'll come around. Oh, we'll start here with Alison. Thanks, Alan. Um, so I've just got a question about Bob's story that you just shared, so very fresh. Um, imagine Bob was unable to get anyone to bother about those cases that were unsolved. Police weren't interested. It was just, you're in prison, you know, that's it. Um, where do you think that would leave Bob? And where do you think um, God's forgiveness stretches beyond him going to relive out that court case sort of thing. Do you know what I'm saying? So there might be things that are so historic oh, that yeah. they couldn't be resolved. I suppose he's and, and how is it in our relationship with Jesus if things do remain unresolved like that? I don't think you can go back and fix everything. Like, I, I think we're forgiven. Like, Jesus has paid the penalty. Um, he's tried. I think it's impressive that he tried once and failed. He still kept trying. <laughs> he was determined, wasn't he? Uh, I remember I said to the chaplain, I said, it seems pretty tough to me that he's got another 11 years. And Wally said, you mightn't think that if it was your face, he stuck a gun in and took your money. He probably, the money's probably gone. He can't give that back. So, yeah, but our forgiveness isn't conditional on pay, paying, paying back everything we've done wrong. It's, pay, it's paid for, but if you can, I think we should, yeah. I don't know if Liam wants to add anything, no? Yep, the question's up the back, there's Jenny and... There you go. Alison, it sounds like you have to go to the police station after all. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Um, in relation to the analogy of the... If Jesus is in the driver's seat, being different from having him in the back seat, um, you quoted the guy as saying 
having him in the back seat as your saviour rather than in the front seat as Lord. But I just wonder if Jesus is not Lord, is he saviour? Can you, can you yeah. have one without the other, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I should say, I'd say no blanketly, and then I'd say, but all of us start off that way. You know, we don't start off with, you know, we become Christians and our lives don't, we don't suddenly get Jesus in the driver's seat and everything, do we? So no. there's, you couldn't go on and be a Christian and like he couldn't be in 30 years' time saying, I'm a Christian, but still stealing or robbing or selling drugs or whatever he's doing. So I don't want to be too harsh and say he's not a Christian, but the Holy Spirit, I, I, talking to that guy, my, well, time will tell, but my conviction was he, he was convicted by the Holy Spirit that he needed to get the whole, he needed to get Jesus in the driver's seat. Yeah. And we're all, still, we're all still being convicted of that, aren't we, really, in areas of our lives. Yeah. I don't know if that, does that help, Jenny? Or? Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Louise. All right. Any any more hands? Yes. Just in relation to like verse three, where he says, "I don't, e I do not even judge myself." Personally, I'm a really critical person, so I find it really hard not to judge myself. Is he just meaning in relation to? how well he's proving himself faithful to the word? Uh, no, I think he's happily, happy to be held accountable for the word. I think he's going on there in verse six or verse 7 saying, you know, you can judge us by, the, by what we're teaching to the word of God. I think he's saying, I think he's talking about the motives of their heart. And he's saying, like, he's, they can't hold him guilty for that. But he's saying, but I'm not innocent. Everyone... Everyone struggles with motives. Um, I'm up here. There's an element where I want to do a good job for the glory of God, but there's also an element, from, personally, I, you know, a self-glorification element. And I, I think everyone struggles with that. I think, I think that's what he's talking about. None of us are innocent. Because only Jesus was perfect. So mm. he's, not, he's saying, I'm not innocent in this, but don't judge, don't judge on that. You don't know that. Only God knows the hearts of men. I think there's certain things... Jesus talks about hypocritical judgment in Matthew 8, I think. Um, yeah, and so we shouldn't judge eternally. We can never say someone's going to hell. We don't know how God, how God will work on them. And he's saying, and you don't, don't judge the motives of our hearts, us teachers. Is that, does that help what you're asking? Yeah, yeah. And on that as well, like, do you think it's helpful as a Christian to be questioning how faithful our brothers and sisters are being? Or Oh, wow. We don't want to be judgmental. Um, we want to be praying. You know, if we see someone that's struggling which, or, or we think they're sinning, we, we can approach them in love and, and with a gentle heart um, if they refuse. There you go. We'll, we'll finish for that next week. It's a big subject. It's a great question. Yeah. No, no more no, confessions. Suze wants to go. We, we can get the police on the phone if that helps. Just a um, bit uh, prior to that where he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. So does that mean he doesn't recognise other people's judgment and the court's judgment on him? Uh, would you mean like a civil court? Well, that's just what it says here. Any, any human court. I think you've got to look at it in the context he's talking. He is then saying you can judge me by what I teach. 
and he, certainly he wouldn't expect to be let off from crime. Um, so I don't think he's saying that. I think he's more talking, you can't judge the motives of my heart. Uh, I think that's specifically what he goes to there in that case, yeah. And they were, they were making all sorts of ridiculous judgments on their teachers and picking these personalities, I follow him, I follow that one. So he's addressing a specific situation. Yeah, I think he's, uh, he's certainly talking within the church, he's talking about there, yeah. I don't know if Liam wants to add to that. No, okay. That any helps Sue, or okay? Yep, that's great. Uh, we'll go to our final song.